Well, uh, good morning. All right, you're already off to a better start than the first service, but that's not really saying much. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue on with our Roman series this week, and we're going to come to this week my favorite passage in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, um, Mike kind of took my whole introduction from me last week because my whole plan was to talk about how much I love this passage, how much it's been an anchor in my life, and how if I had to take one page from my Bible to a deserted island, it would be New Testament page 140, which is where Romans 8 is in, in my Bible. Um, but it turns out that like liking this chapter is kind of like liking Chick-fil-A, like everybody knows it's good, right? So um, I didn't have like some kind of secret um, there. We've been comparing this journey we're on through the book of Romans to climbing a mountain. And if you persevere and you get to the top, there's something amazing. And Mike actually said that last week that chapter 8 might be the summit of the mountain. And there's still stuff to go through to come back down. But the summit's where the vistas are and it's awesome. And, and I think that's today we're going to the top of the mountain, to the peak of the peak. And so um, I grew up in Denver. If you looked from my house as a kid to the northwest along the front range, you saw this mountain. This is Long's Peak. If any of you have been to um, Estes Park, Colorado, you've looked at Long's Peak. It's 14,259 feet tall, one of the uh, 14,000 plus um, mountains that's in the state of Colorado. It's kind of a thing to try to go climb all of what they call out there, the locals call it the 14ers, right? You got to call it, climb all the 14ers. That right there is the most famous part of Long's Peak. It is, it's called the diamond. It's a 1000 foot sheer face of rock. And it's awesome. But if you're going to go climb Long's Peak, which you could actually do, anyone who is in relatively decent shape, um, can actually make an eight mile hike when the seasons are right, to the peak of Long's Peak without, like, needing crazy technical ropes and crampons and all this kind of, like, ever stuff, right? Like, you just put on some, some gear and go. Um, but to get there, you have to go through what's on the top left is called the keyhole. And it's, like, mountains are kind of like stars, right? They name them for all these shapes, and I can never see the shape. But I guess that's supposed to be a, a keyhole, right? The last mile of the climb to Long's Peak it's treacherous. You go through the keyhole, then you go across the narrows, and it's a mile-long area of narrow single track with sheer faces on the sides of you that you can go to to get to the top. And so what we're going to do today, I fully believe Romans chapter 8 is the summit, and the verses we're going to read are the top rock on the top rock of the summit, the peak of the peak, the top of the rock. That's where we're going to go. But before we get there, we're going to have to go through this keyhole today. All right, so you with me? All right, let's start with this. Um, a couple years ago, Beaver Lake, uh, I have one hobby. Right? I have three kids and a job, which means I have one hobby. And I like to be happy, so my hobby is not golf. <laughs> I love fishing. I'm passionate about fishing. A couple years ago, Beaver Lake went through, there was this week, two weeks, where like six people drowned at Beaver Lake. In the summertime. And I, on the news, um, one night I saw the, the rescue guy for Benton County um, Sheriff's Department say, you know, I've never re personally, he goes, I personally have never recovered a body from this lake that was wearing a life jacket. Matter of fact, if 84% of people who die in a boating accident from drowning die without wearing a life jacket. 
I spent a lot of time on the water, so I thought, you know, um, my wife's encouragement, I, I went and I got this. So this is a life preserver, right? So now when I'm out on my boat in the morning and it's dark, or if I'm out there in January and it's cold and I'm fishing and I don't want to be in the water, I wear this life jacket. And it, it only works if you're wearing it. And the, the tricky thing about it is you don't know when you're going to need it until you need it. A couple years ago, my brother and I were fishing. It was a few years back. We were fishing in Colorado at this lake where you can only do electric boats. And so I had this little canoe. So we're fishing out of this canoe. And uh, my brother's in the front, and he's fly fishing. And he rips off a double haul and just slings a, a, a cast way out there. And in the process, he falls out of the canoe. Now, my brother's got this shoulder deal, and so while he's falling out of the canoe, he tries to hold on to the canoe, his shoulder pops out, he dislocates his shoulder. So he's hanging on the side of the boat with a dislocated shoulder. He's like, hey, can you help me? I'm like, hold on, let me finish this cast. All right, I'm, I'm in the back. I'm like, I'm in my spot. That's what you get when you get with us. But the life jacket only works when you need it, and you don't know when you're going to need it. What we're going to see today is that we all need a life jacket. You will need it. And we're going to put it on together. So let me start with this question. How many of you, don't be shy to raise your hand, because the point of this is that almost everybody's going to raise their hand, okay? I'm going to give you the point now. How many of you would say, yeah, in my life, I have experienced suffering, pain, disappointment, or hurt? How many of us can say that's been a part of our life, right? Absolutely. It's almost every hand. And I can promise you that by the time each of us gets to the end of our life, we'll all be able to raise our hand to that question. There's coming a point in a moment in your life where a storm of suffering is going to knock you out of the boat. And you need to have a life jacket on for when that moment comes. And the verses we're going to talk about today, that's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that hope is the life preserver that keeps us afloat through the storms of suffering in this life and into the glory of the life that is to come. Hope is the life preserver that keeps us afloat through the storms of suffering to this li- in this life to the glory of the life that is to come. This is an important job of the church, is to, uh, we'll call it pain preparedness, You need to be a prepper. You need to be ready. You need to have a framework that when the pain of life comes, when when the scan of the tumor is on the phone, you have something to do with that, and you know kind of what to do with that. And that's where we're going to be today, okay? So we're going to go through the keyhole. You ready to do it? Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider... The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope There's kind of our key word today, hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption 
our body. Paul starts off this passage by saying, here is our present reality. Our present reality is suffering and pain. Our present reality is suffering and pain. So, hey, hope you're encouraged. Thanks for coming this week. We'll see you back. Well, real uplifting. I promise. This is the keyhole. We'll get to the top. It'll get better from here, right? But we've got to enter into this. We have to enter into this because this is the big question. If pain and suffering is is 100% guaranteed in life, then you and I, we have to have a theology, a framework, a foundation for where and why and how that exists and what that says about God and what that says about us and what that says about our world. And if we don't have that framework built up, then when that moment comes, we're in serious danger of being swept overboard into the storm. So we're going to spend a little minute today talking about why they're suffering why there's pain and why there's difficulty in our world. And we're going to talk about, really, there's three reasons why. Two of them are kind of like, there's a direct reason why you and I have suffering and pain in this world. And then there's an indirect reason. But all of them fall under one big heading, and that is this. Very simply said, pain and suffering exists and is a result of sin. Pain and suffering is a result of sin. Now I'm going to say this. I'm not arrogant enough or proud enough to think that we can sit here and answer the big question of why pain to all of our satisfaction for all of life, right? Like that is a complicated question that we will not know in eternity. But when we start to see the impact of sin in our lives, in the people's lives around us and in the world, then we start to recognize that most of suffering starts to kind of make a little bit of sense. And it's really as a result of sin. Now let's talk about how this is. You gotta stay with me for the whole time to get this, alright? For, for like the next five minutes, we're gonna talk about this together. And you gotta be with me from the beginning to the end. The first thing is this. Pain and suffering, there's a direct result in pain and suffering in my life from my own sin. My own sins often yield in my life pain and suffering. This is what happens when the kid touches the hot stove and it burns, right? That's just That's what happens when you touch the hot stove. So let's go to an extreme example of this, right? You're out on Saturday night, you drink way too much, you drive drunk, you're selfish and irresponsible, you don't get to wake up in the hospital the next day after the car is smashed in the tree and say, I don't know why God just lets bad bad things happen to good people. You don't get to do that in that moment. There's a moment where you can ask that, but that's not it, right? Taxes were due this last week. Everybody get the taxes turned in on time, all right? How many of you, like me, already spent the return? Like, that was a long time ago. You lie on the taxes, try to save a few bucks. The feds show up, do whatever they do. You don't get to be like, I don't know why all the bad stuff happens to me. No, you lied. Like, there's an impact to that. Now, carry that out to your personal relationships. When you lie to other people. When you harbor ill unforgiveness. And you lose your temper and you let anger be uncontrolled in your life. Don't be surprised when there's an impact and a consequence for that. Second thing, another direct result of sin is another person's sin. Somebody else sins. I get swept up in that. And all of a sudden, I have this pain and suffering in my life. Because here's the reality. We do not sin in a vacuum. Your choices, my choices, the sinful things that I let happen in my life, they have repercussions 
on the people around me, often on the people that I'm closest to. And I know that in this room today, almost every one of us, when we raise our hand and we say, yeah, I've experienced some pain and some suffering for most of us. What that means is that somebody else's sin I've been in the ripple of, and it's left a wound and a scar and a pain, and I'm still hurting from it. And it's because of sin. And I see a lot of heads shaking right now. I'll give you a couple examples. In the 1970s, there was a psychologist named Judith Wallerstein, and she studied a group of kids who were from divorced homes. And she actually studied them for 25 years after they experienced a divorce in their family from when they were young. And what Judith Wallerstein thought she would find with these kids, like, oh, kids are resilient, you know, that one, the parents get divorced and they, they have a couple years of difficulty in adolescence, but then they bounce back, they rise strong, and they're, they're, you know, they're back. What Judith Wallerstein actually found was that 25 years after the event of a divorce in a family, children who were from a broken home experienced significantly high, higher levels of expectations of failure, fear of loss, fear of conflict, fear of change, and depression. It actually led her to conclude that the major impact of divorce isn't during childhood or adolescence, but it's actually felt in adulthood. There's a lot of people in this room right now from divorced homes. And that's a wake, that's a ripple of someone else's choices that has an impact on your life. Let's talk about sexual abuse. The Department of um, Human Services did a study in 2010 found that 20% of adult females, 10% of adult males, report remembering an, an incident of childhood sexual assault or sexual abuse. In a one-year period in the United States, 16% of youth ages 14 to 17 are sexually abused or sexually assaulted. In a room this size, there are a lot of people deeply impacted by someone else's sinful choices. Like a lot of you, I've been a victim of another person's sin. And I struggled for a long time in my life to think, where was God in that moment? Where is he when other people are doing things? That, and, it, and, I, and I'm an innocent bystander and I'm the collateral damage. You have to do something with that. And I have decided that really I think the answer is that God was right there with his heart being absolutely wrecked and broken by sin. There's also an indirect impact of sin. Suffering and pain are a result of sin. One of those indirect things is, guess what? We live in the middle of a world that just isn't the way it's supposed to be. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. And that's really what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. Let's look back in your Bibles to how he describes this world. In verse 20, Paul says, creation was subjected to futility. In verse 21, he says, creation is so bad that he describes it as being a slave to corruption. In verse 22, he says, creation is groaning with pain. You know, the direct sin, my sin stuff, I think most of us kind of get that. Like, hey, there's consequences to my actions. 
But that doesn't answer my question when the doctor's report is cancer or ALS. doesn't help me understand why we struggle with infertility or a social disorder or mental illness. What about the kind of suffering that's caused by the impact of tsunamis and tornadoes and droughts and fires and earthquakes? Where does that come from? The answer is, we live in a world that's been marred, broken by sin. And the consequences of that in this whole creation, we get swept up in. Paul's saying, every single part of the earth is out of whack. Let's think back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. What was that like there? Adam and Eve hanging out with all the animals, God actually walking on the earth with them in this place of absolute perfection. And yesterday I'm out there like with the weed eater and I'm looking around at the yard and the rocks and I'm like, how am I ever going to get grass to grow right here? Like Adam never had to own the weed eater, right? He never had to fight against what was broken in nature. Adam never had to deal with ALS or cancer or Alzheimer's, he didn't, those weren't in the picture until after the curse. And now, from that moment till now, Paul says creation, every part of it, every ocean, every mountaintop, the grass in your yard that you pay the guys to come keep the weeds out of, right? Your body, the cells in your body that are broken and are wearing down. My grandparents are failing right now and they're aging and their bodies just, it's wearing out. Where does that come from? It comes because we live in a world that's cursed by sin. And this brings me to kind of a side note that I thought about this week. Can I just tell you the impact of sin? Sin kills stuff. Sin is deadly. And would God make me and would God make you the kind of person who literally hates sin in our lives and in our world? Would we just be against it? No tolerance policy on sin in our lives. Every little thing that we think, I just, I'm tired of dealing with it, or I'm just going to let it go, or I'm just going to let it ride, or maybe it's no big deal. God, may God help all of us recognize the impact of sin, that it's deadly, it's dangerous, it hurts, it breaks things all the time. And I hope that we would just want it not in our lives anymore. That's a huge part of Romans chapter 8. All right, that's the bad news. You ready for some good news? Yes, All right. <laughs> the good news is you and I and this creation will not be like that for long. Our future reality, if our present reality is pain and suffering, our future reality is pleasure, perfection, and glory. We're going to talk about heaven for a little bit here. Talk about eternity for a minute, all right? Because that's what Paul's describing. Um, interestingly, most Americans, the Pew Research Center did a study, found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven or some form of afterlife. And it's interesting that even though we're rapidly becoming a less and less and less religious society, from the 1940s until now, the percentage of us who believe in heaven really hasn't changed much. But what we believe about heaven is as important as if we believe in heaven. 
And look, I'm, I'm a pastor's kid. I've been to more church services than probably anybody in this room who's my age, right? I mean, before I was born, I mean, we went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was like 30-something years old before I realized that what I knew about heaven and what I thought I believed about heaven was complete, like, nonsense. It was crazy. All right, so let's just talk about eternity for a minute. Most of us, when we believe something about heaven, we believe that heaven is in some far-off, mystical, out-there, out-of-space kind of place. And most of us believe that we're going to exist without a body. That's actually a, from the Pew study. Most of us believe we exist just as some kind of ghost floating around in some kind of ethereal space. And if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us think heaven is pretty darn boring. Because even though we believe that there won't be any pain, there won't be any sorrow, there won't be any bad stuff there, when most of us think about heaven, I think we've been taught to believe that it's some kind of like eternal church service. Now listen, my family, we try to get here every Sunday, right? High priority for us. We love coming to church. Mike, sermon's usually pretty good, buddy. (laughs) But eternity is a really long time. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some of you agreed too quickly to that, right? <laughs> no, no, we want church forever. It's awesome. No, we don't exist in some disembodied spiritual ghost form just sitting in pews singing songs for all of eternity. Eternity is a very real place. You will have a very real body, and it will be mind-blowingly awesome. And the Bible describes it this way in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. John's having a vision of what's happening for eternity, and this is what he sees. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. By the way, what does that sound like? Like Genesis 1, the beginning? And so he comes down, the city comes down, God's dwelling with them, and they shall be my people, and God himself will be among them, and he'll wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there'll no longer be any death, there'll no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, for the first things have passed away. And in Romans 8, Paul says what's happening right now in creation is that creation is so broken, and it's groaning, but it's not groaning because it's dying. It's groaning because something new is happening and is coming. It's groaning like a mom would groan in a labor room. Anybody ever been in a labor delivery room? I know a few of you have. There's a lot of kids back there, right? And like, that's a painful place. There's things that are said in there, right? Stuff happens. It isn't always pretty, but it's hopeful. There's something beautiful happening. And that's where creation is. Creation is going to be set free from this corruption. That last bucket of indirect stuff, the sin and suffering that happens because we live in an imperfect world of brain tumors and cancer and all that stuff, that bucket is going away someday when something new comes. 
And those first two buckets of my sin and your sin, Paul says the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And just like creation's groaning, we're groaning because we can see a little bit from the Holy Spirit of this is what God's making me to be. And in the end, he's going to turn us into this perfection, glorification. It's done. It's different. And we're changed forever. And that is eternity. And what Paul says at the beginning here is something very important. See, what you believe about heaven It doesn't just matter when you're in the casket. It matters tomorrow when you're in your life because how you believe, what you believe, how much you believe in eternity affects how you live today. And having the right perspective there gives you freedom to take risks today. It detaches our hearts from loving the things of this world so much because it's so brief. It's so short. The Bible says it's just a vapor our life. And it's going to be mind-blowingly awesome. That's what we hope for. And hope is our life preserver that keeps us afloat through the storms of suffering in this life to the glory of the life that is to come. All right, we're going to, we're going to strap on this life jacket with three buckles in the rest of this chapter. Three sources of hope for us. You ready for it? Source number one, we have hope because the Holy Spirit is helping in our weaknesses. First buckle of the life jacket is the Holy Spirit is helping in our weaknesses. I'm living in this present place full of pain and suffering. Not going to be like that forever, but that's what it's like right now. I got to get from here to there. And the first way I'm going to do that is I'm going to know the Holy Spirit is helping with our weaknesses. Verse 26 of Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps with our weaknesses. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. The danger of pain and suffering in our life is that it makes us feel overwhelmed. It makes us feel like, I, I can't. I can't get through this. I can't make it through the next thing. No matter what, how big or how small your pain or suffering feels like, that's exactly what Satan wants you to feel like, is that you won't make it through this. You will make it through this because you have the helper of all helpers living inside of you, and that is the Holy Spirit. You want to do something awesome this week? You read Romans chapter 8, and you look at everything in this one chapter that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. I'll give you a head start. Verse 10 and 11, it says the Holy Spirit is making us alive. Verse 13, it says, the Holy Spirit is helping us put to death our flesh. Verse 14, it says, the Holy Spirit is leading us. Verse 15, or 16, it says, the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are children of God. And then what we just read in verse 27, the Holy Spirit himself is praying for us. The Holy Spirit is so amazing and so powerful that in the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, it is better for you if I go away so that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, can come. That's pretty strong commentary. It's better for Jesus to leave so this guy can come. Better for you that the Holy Spirit's here. Why? Look at verse 11 in Romans chapter 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Let me ask you a question. If you're following along, this should be easy. Who is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead? Holy Spirit. Awesome. You're also ahead of first service. 
We had to go back and redo the whole first 20 minutes at this point. The power source that literally raised a dead body to life again is inside of you every single day. That's hope. You can make it through every trial and every pain because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Secondly, all right, we're going to go the deep end of the pool here for a second, all right? Secondly, the second buckle on the life jacket, the second reason, source of hope in our life is that God gives meaning to our suffering. God gives meaning to our suffering. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Many of you will have this verse memorized. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purposes. For those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. One of the dangers of pain and suffering in our life is that it can make us believe that God is not in control. God's in control, then why is this happening? I just want you to know right now that every wound, every hurt, every pain, it's not some random event that caught God off guard. It's a tool in the hands of of a loving God. No matter how ugly you think it is, God causes all things to work together for good. Now let's stop right here. This verse is like a loaded weapon, all right? Some of you know my story. My dad was a pastor of a church in Colorado. He was killed in a car wreck. I was in my early 20s when this happened, um, 15 years ago. And I can't count how many times in the early days after that happened, well-intentioned people who would say, God causes all things to work together for good. I'm like, I want to punch you in the face right now, like, a, like Jesus would. Right? <laughs> Listen, you let the Holy Spirit put this truth deep into your heart so that when the moment comes, and you need this truth, it's strapped on, you're secured, you're buckled in, and you know, this hurts, this stinks, but I believe God can use it for good. What is good? See, the TV preachers want you to think that good for you is just removing all that stuff every time, that God's just going to swoop in, fix it all, off we go. It's not what he says here, Romans 8 verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. What is for your good? It is for your good that God uses every part of your life to make you look more like Jesus. And I love the picture he uses here. He says, um, to be conformed to the image of the son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What God is really looking for here is that he is looking to change through the circumstances of our life, change you and change me till I look like I'm Jesus' little brother. You ever play that game like, hey, you know, who, which person in your family do you look like? I'm terrible at that stuff. I'm like, a baby, look like they all look the same. Um, except for my three girls, which are totally different, right? But if you've seen one of my three girls, you've seen them all. Blonde hair, blue eyes, 
you know a Ferguson girl when you see a Ferguson girl. And that's what God's looking for here. He's going, I want a whole bunch of people who look just like their big brother, Jesus. And I want everybody who sees them to know they're his brother. That's what he's trying to do. Now, okay, we gotta, I need to take a three-minute timeout. Because there's a couple of words in these verses that we just have to kind of address. Because it would be really awkward if we didn't because they're big words. All right? And the word is the P word. The word is predestination. Some of you have never heard that word before. You can like check out for 30 seconds or a minute if you want to, but you might want to stay along so you kind of know where we're going with this. All right. So this is going to get deep, but I'm going to try to just skip a rock over this so that you can kind of understand where we're coming from together. And then we'll all stay out of trouble together too. Right. So that'll be good. Paul uses the word predestined three different times here. And basically, in the course of Christian history, there's kind of two extremes on how we deal with this word. One extreme is a group of people who followed the teaching of a guy named Jacobius Arminius, or Arminianism. And the key teaching, both these guys who started this have like kind of five points, because they're pastors and they have to have everything out like in points, right? Um, they also both have beards. So like, you can like, decide where you land by whose beard you like the most. I don't know how you want to do this, right? Jacobus Arminius was a Dutch theologian, and his main emphasis was man's free will, that man has a choice. And so Jacobus Arminius reads Romans 8.29 to read something like this, that God in his crazy godness was able to look forward in time and see who out of their own free will would choose to love God and follow God. And then he's going to predestine their lives around this so that those people who would, on their own free will, choose to love God, end up looking like Jesus in the end. That's how Jacobus Arminius views this. Awesome, godly Christian men believe what Jacobus Arminius believes. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, right? There are people in this room and on the staff at this church who their beliefs kind of are more on the left side of this continuum. There's not very many people, I don't believe, average Joes who live on one left or one right of this thing. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. But there's people who are more that way. Then the other teaching comes from a guy named John Calvin, John Calvin's one of the early reformers. His main emphasis is, no, wait, it isn't about like God's free, like man's free will. Like this is actually about God is so incredible and so powerful that he chooses some people. And then he, the people that he chooses, he saves and they, nothing can stop them from being saved because he's chosen them. And then he predestines their lives around us to be more like Jesus, right? That's a summary roughly of how John Calvin views this verse. So John Calvin would read Romans 8, 29 and think God actually picked some people that he would conform to his image and he would make sure that it happened. Famous godly men have more John Calvin leanings. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, um, famous you know, Christian men who Mike has quoted almost everybody on the screen in one sermon or another. These are all like solid people, right? This isn't like wackos versus normal people. This is like rational theologians debating what, how this looks. And I say all that to lead you to kind of three conclusions about this thing, and then we will move on to something that I think matters more. One is that um, I, I, this is not an essential tenet of our faith. The other is that there are lots of people who believe both these things. And thirdly, if you really want to know more about this, you should probably just do some homework on your own, okay? And um, I've given you John Piper's uh, name there as well as... Um, Another name on the other side of the pole, you can kind of go, look, those are modern believers of this stuff. You can go chase that down. Here's the point. As a church, and the reason my family comes to this church is because in the essentials, we have unity. 
There aren't that many essentials, but man, they're really important. What are the essentials? We believe that this book is God's book. It's inerrant, unflawed, it's perfect, it's given to us as the guide for life. We believe that Jesus Christ is a real person who was the Son of God, who was born from a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, so that you and I, if we put our faith and trust in him, can believe in him and have salvation, which we cannot earn on our own. It only comes through him. Those are the essentials. We agree about that. There's no continuum. It's a thin line. Yes or no, that's what we believe. And as a church, we say yes to that together, don't we? Can you say yes to that? Heck yeah. But then there's a whole bunch of other stuff, like what we just talked about. They're like, well, Mike might believe this, and I might believe that, and Randy might have a different view. And when we come to those things, you know what we say? Hey, in good conscience, you study, you let God's Spirit lead you, and you can believe whatever you want, as long as it's not clearly contradictory to the essentials. And then in everything, in all of this stuff, we love each other, don't we? We don't let little things like this divide people. We let it. We love one another. When I was in my 20s and I knew everything, I cared a lot about this stuff, right? That was before I had kids. Now I know nothing, and I care about nothing. (laughs) They wore me down. The point today is this. Don't let this tension between man's free will and God's sovereignty, don't let some complicated, difficult to understand or deal with words in this passage let you miss this beautiful truth. There's no pain, there's no wound, there's no disappointment, there's no difficulty in your life that a loving God will not use for good, and nothing is better for you than to look like Jesus. And look at how Paul ends this passage in verse 30. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Okay, grammatical quiz for you. What tense are those words in? Past tense, Paul was so certain that God would do this, he wrote it as if it was already done. Third and final bucket to the life jacket, and here we go. This is the top of the rock right here. You ready for it? Christ's love is undefeated. Christ's love is absolutely undefeated. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What do we say to everything we just, it's like everything I just wrote to you in this whole chapter, what do you say to that? Here's what we say. If God's for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that? Doesn't matter. Nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Then he goes to a courtroom setting. Who will give a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Nobody else can say a word. Who would condemn? Jesus Christ has already been condemned for us. Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, was who was raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God. Look at this. Who will intercede for us? That's Jesus Christ. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sakes, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to the slaughter. 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. The, the word there is we conquer, conquer. We overconquer. It's where a popular brand of shoes gets their names, right? Like we are victorious in all this stuff. Why? Because I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be ever able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The great danger of suffering for a lot of us is that it makes us just question, okay, God, if you are in control, then do you love me? If you love me, why would you let this happen to me? Don't let the suffering and pain and discouragement and disappointment from living in a broken world eclipse for you the greatest statement of love that has ever been made in history, and that is the cross, where Jesus once and for all displayed his love for you, and that love is undefeated. And if you will let him walk you through every trial and every pain and every difficulty, you will feel that love every minute of every day and for all of eternity because it is undefeated. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. And it's a song that's been on repeat at our house, the Ferguson house here lately, um, because we're pretty real in our house about the ups and downs of life and the difficulties and pains. And one of the most important things in our house is just that we, we say, God, you're... You've been so good to us. You're just good. And I'm not saying that bad stuff hasn't happened. I'm not saying that we haven't had desperate moments. I'm saying, God, through all of it, you're good. And there's this line in the song that says, And should this life bring suffering, and it will, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me both now and forever. What happened on that cross and what was bought for you on that cross is this. What was bought for you on the cross is every pain and every tragedy and every trial all of a sudden now becomes a tool in the hand of a loving God. And there's an eternity where all that stuff is gone. That's what was bought for you on the cross. Now listen, we're not to that moment yet. We live in the, in the middle. And I love this quote from Levi Lesko because it just acknowledges something that I want to acknowledge today, and that is hurting with hope still hurts. We're not pain deniers here. We're open and honest and say, God, this is a wound that I have. This is painful. This is hurtful. I'm scarred. I'm broken. I'm wounded. And that hurts me. But in the middle of that hurt the life jacket on there's protection and there is hope I'm going to close by praying for anyone and everyone who's dealing with wounds and struggles today so I'm going to ask you to just put your stuff away just close your eyes bow your head and try to make this a moment of solitude between you and God for for the next couple of minutes and if you have you got some wounds, some suffering, some pains in your life. I'm going to pray for you right now, but I would ask you in this moment just to give those to God yourself and say, God, here it is. Cause hope to rise up and use these things.
Father, we end today by acknowledging that you're good and you want our good. You want us to look like Jesus. In the middle of all that, we live in a world that's just broken by sin. We acknowledge that. That hurts. And today we just invite you into those hurts and those pains. And I would ask, Father, for every single person who's here today who's struggling, discouraged, broken, hurting, suffering, would you cause hope to float up irrepressible in their life? God, cause it to come to the top. We have hope in you, in your spirit, in your control, and in your son and in his love. We have hope in every single circumstance. In your name we pray.